So, Lord God, I pray that you would help us uh, this morning to preach. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Amen. In a short time, you decided what kind of man I am. Stuck a label on me. But that's not for you to decide. This is the man I am. It takes a man to be yourself. It takes the right razor to express it. Schick HydroSense. We've sold space to commercial advertisers to help the budget. But we all imagine uh, great things for ourselves, right? And our economy runs on that fact. Imagine great things for yourself and then we will help you obtain a product. We will sell you a product to help you obtain those great things for yourself. Achieve those great things for yourself. Imagine great things for yourself, and he imagines a dance move. Now, it's a cool dance move. Got nothing against the dance move. I just doubt that it is who he really is, and that the Schick HydroSense razor was necessary for him to become who, who he is. We all imagine great things for ourselves and seek those great things. But recently, uh, great things for ourselves have been harder and harder to imagine, and they've definitely become harder and harder to, to seek. If you're like me, you've gotten older. And every year, great things you imagine for yourself seem harder and harder to attain. That's been especially true this past year. Since April, the economy has just tanked. Something like four, almost 400,000 people now have died. Currently, from what I understand, there are more troops in Washington, D.C. than there are in Iraq, Syria, and, and Afghanistan combined. That's what I heard, anyway. And yet, ever since April, I've been feasting my soul on a text that I find just deeply encouraging. I'd like to share it with you today. It's Jeremiah chapter 45. You may remember that Jeremiah prophesied in Judah and to Judah, uh, beginning under the reign of King Josiah, good King Josiah, and continuing through the fall of Jerusalem under the reign of his not-so-good sons. During that time, Jeremiah prophesied immense destruction and this outrageous hope, not only for Judah, but for all the nations. The book ends with prophecies to, to, to the nations. He prophesied, he suffered immensely, and he had a secretary named Baruch. Baruch wrote down all that Jeremiah prophesied for at least the first 22 years, and probably all of it, but at least the first 22 years of Jeremiah's ministry, he wrote it down twice. And now remember that in those days there were no typewriters, word processors, computers. He writes on papyrus or, or vellum, which would be like an animal skin, and almost everyone hates what he writes. And he probably hates what he writes because he's prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, which is his, his home. In chapter 36, as the scroll was read to bad king Jehoiakim, in the fourth year of his reign, after each section had been read, the king would cut it off and throw it in the fire. 
And then he issues an order that Jeremiah and Baruch be seized and probably executed, but Jeremiah and Baruch escape, and at that, God tells Jeremiah and Baruch to do it all again. (laughs) Write it all down again. Just add a few more words of woe for the king. This all happens in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim's reign. Well, through Jeremiah, God speaks to to Judah, and he speaks to Egypt, he speaks to Babylon and all the nations, but in chapter 45, he speaks to Baruch, Jeremiah's secretary. He speaks to Baruch and to me. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. You said, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I'm weary with my groaning and I find no rest. Thus shall you say to him, that is Baruch, I command you to preach this to yourself. Thus says the Lord, behold, what I have built, I'm breaking down, and what I have planted, I'm plucking up. That is the whole land, the Eretz, also translated earth. And do you seek great things for yourself? (sighs) Well, we all seek great things for ourselves, right? Our economy runs on the assumption that we imagine and seek great things for ourselves, And also the, the assumption and, and the truth that we aren't very good at discerning what great things actually are. A soft drink, a car, public accolades, or the Schick Hydrosense razor. When my son Coleman was two, I remember one day I said, hey buddy, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, a backhoe. I said, do you, do you mean you you want to drive a backhoe? And remember, he, he looked up at me with incredulity. And he said, no, be a backhoe. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are, anything your heart desires will come to you really used to stress me out when my kids would sing that. Imagine if he turned into a backhoe. Imagine if anything that his two-year-old heart desired came to him. That, that would be a tragedy. When I was about seven, I joined the Indian Guides. And in Indian Guides, you had to wear like this little loincloth thing. Were any of you in the Indian Guides, Alan? We were probably in the same Indian Guides, were we? Okay, well, this is, this is true. Was that, we were like seven maybe or something? But I remember in Indian Guides, you had to wear this little loincloth and uh, over your shorts, and it had a butt flap, you know, the part that hung over your behind. And all the other kids' butt flaps, at least in my mind, kind of went just like that, pretty much straight down. But my butt flap went like this and then down. As a kid, I, uh, I really had a complex about this. And it stayed with me a long, a long time. In the 60s and this early 70s, I remember I would make my mom buy these striped tight, that was the thing then, but I'd make her buy striped tight pants for me to make my bottom look smaller. And then they kept ripping out in the seat and we would have this argument all the time about tight pants. In college, I was ashamed that my behind looked like a bubble. My roommate, Brad, used to call me bubble butt. For years, I dreamed and I imagined that my butt was smaller. Then one day, after I turned 50, my wife looked at me and she said, you have no butt. What happened to your butt? And I looked and sure, and sure enough, it was right, it had disappeared, which means that at some point, at some point, I don't know, maybe like in the middle of the night, sometime along about 2011, maybe for just a few seconds, my bottom was, was perfect. And I missed it, I missed it, I totally missed it. Recently I've been going to the doctor with hip problems and last week he told me, your problem is, 
you lost your butt. Well, I'm just pointing out that like every little kid, we all imagine great things for ourselves, right? And yet we don't know what great things are. We imagine great things for ourselves, seek great things for ourselves, and when we get those great things for ourselves, we discover that they're just kind of not all that great. There was a time when I imagined that tying my shoe would make everything great, and it was for a few hours. Then I imagined if I could just ride a bike, God, make everything great, and it was for a few hours. Then I imagined, you know, if I had a locker like the kids in junior high, everything would be great. And it was for a few hours. It, it was really great. Then I imagined if only I graduated, everything would be great. And it, and it wasn't all that great because then I realized, oh, now I've got to find a job. And then I imagined if only I could get a job as a pastor. And, and, you know, the church grew and all the people thought that I was cool. And then I imagined that we could get a big new building and I imagined that I could write some, publish some books. And then I got all those things and I felt like I was trapped and utterly exhausted by all of those things. Then I lost all of those things. And then in the middle, and I, somewhere along about 2011, my butt disappeared. And now I really miss it. I mean, it hurts right now. I'm, I'm seriously having problems. Anyway, I'm just saying, we imagine great things for ourselves, seek great things for ourselves, and then when we get great things for ourselves, we find that they're not all that great, and we're miserable. When I seek great things for myself, I often find myself incredibly anxious, driven, insecure, and alone. If I seek to preach a great sermon for myself, I get really stressed. I get stressed about myself, and, and I even start to hope that maybe, you know, Chris, Carl, and Andrew don't preach great sermons because I'm comparing myself to Chris, Carl, and, and, and Andrew and seeking great things for myself. I'm anxious, driven, insecure, and alone when I seek great things for myself, even if those things are themselves actually great. <laughs> so let me ask you, is righteousness great? Oh yeah. But if I seek it for myself, might I become self-righteous? Is Jesus great? Oh yeah, he's great. You know, the Pharisees wanted him for themselves. That's why they took his life on a tree in a garden. They were jealous. They didn't want to be with Jesus. They wanted to possess Jesus for themselves. Is salvation great? Well, yeah. So why did Jesus say this, and I quote, whoever would, whoever will, whoever seeks this, whoever would, desires, would, whoever would save his soul will lose it. Do you seek salvation for yourself. In the great divorce, C.S. Lewis does this incredible job of depicting Hades, that is hell. It's a, it's a place where everyone gets whatever they want, big houses, nice butts, shit razors, all the cool dance moves they could ever uh, desire. Everyone gets what they want, but each, each, one, no, no, each one no longer has. No one has the capacity to want what they get. They, they get what they want, and they, then they don't want what they get, especially themselves, because each is thoroughly anxious and utterly alone. They don't dance together. If they dance, they dance alone. Jeremiah 45, verse four. Thus says the Lord, behold what I have built, like Jerusalem, that's a good thing, right? Behold what I have built, I'm breaking down, and what I have planted, like Israel, the vineyard of the Lord, what I have planted, I am plucking up. That is the whole land, and do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not, for behold, I am bringing disaster raw upon all flesh, declares the Lord. All flesh, not some flesh, not Republican flesh, and not Democrat flesh, 
or not Muslim flesh and not Christian flesh, or, or gay flesh and not straight flesh, or Chris, Andrew, and Carl's flesh and not Peter's flesh, all flesh. You're all gonna get wasted together. That's the judgment on all flesh. What's flesh? Basar is the Hebrew word, and sark is the uh, Greek word, and they seem to seem, mean the same, basically, in, in Greek or, or Hebrew. And flesh, then, what's really the same in English, too? Flesh is flesh. It's meat, you can slap it. That's the, that's the flesh. So what's the problem with flesh? People seem to assume that it's sex, which is kind of weird because God's very first commandment is basically that, be fruitful and multiply. It seems to me that the biblical problem with flesh is not that it's what we would call physical, but that it's entirely self-centered. Except during sacred moments of communion in the sacrament of the covenant of marriage when two bodies of flesh are united making one body, even new life, which we call a baby. So the, the problem, the problem with my flesh is not that it's physical, but that it only feels its own pleasure. It only feels its own pain, my flesh, and so it seeks great things for itself, but not great things for my neighbor. It's alone, and I'm alone, trapped in a body of flesh, and it's not good that Ha'adam, the Adam, is alone. My flesh sees the good and consumes the good and the life and finds itself alone. This is kind of embarrassing, but my flesh eats life and poops death. Is that a shock for you? That's what it does. But in Scripture, flesh often refers to more than physical flesh. It often refers to emotional or psychic flesh, what I think we usually, normally, in everyday conversation call the ego. You see, the flesh is that self that seeks great things for itself. I'm bringing disaster on all flesh, declares the Lord. And maybe that's not such a bad thing. Because, I mean, think about it. Whenever you feel insecure, anxious, arrogant, or alone, just ask yourself, self, are you seeking great things for yourself? I think you'll find that the answer is, yeah, 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 guess I am. And the Lord says, stop it. I'm bringing disaster on all flesh. Why would you want more flesh and I'm bringing disaster on all flesh? The word translated disaster is usually translated evil. And you see, that's really fascinating, for if the desires of the flesh are evil and God brings evil upon that evil, evil is self-annihilating. And even though evil is not what God wills, the fact that you suffer some evil has a purpose. So maybe the purpose of suffering some evil is to annihilate all evil and liberate the good, and, and maybe the good is to know the good who is God, to know the good and love the good in freedom. Now, that's a, that's a tremendously large and wonderful topic, but now back to flesh, because this is an interesting little thing about flesh in, in the Bible. In Scripture, the word flesh, in the Old Testament usually, basar, is also a euphemism for a man's foreskin that covers his penis. Now, that freaks us out because you know, we're kind of modern, promiscuous prudes, but the idea is that something is cut away for the sake of intimate communion that manifests love and produces life and is experienced as joy. <laughs> and now don't get stressed if you're circumcised or not circumcised, because it's a picture, it's a picture of something else, according to Scripture. You know, when people throw a party, they often say, let's get wasted. What is it that they want to have wasted so they can party? Isn't it their flesh, <laughs> their ego? They want to lose themselves so they can find themselves actually loving someone else, 
actually communing with someone else at the party. Well, Scripture says this, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. In other words, it only, it only tears things down. Don't get wasted with wine, for that is dissolution, but be filled with the Spirit. It's fascinating to me that in the Old Testament, in several different places, and you can look these up in the notes to the sermon, in several different places, the judgment of God is pictured as a cup that sinners are forced to drink until drunk. They, they stagger around. It destroys the ego and so looks like shame, and yet it creates something new because there's something amazing in the cup, wine that's blood. <laughs> and blood contains the life, that is the spirit, and that river of blood, it brings everything together in one tremendous body. I'm bringing disaster on all flesh, declares the Lord. That sounds terrifying and painful and imagine that it is, but it may also be what I, trapped in this body of flesh and ego, most desperately desire. The judgment of God. Peter, Andrew, Carl, and Chris, you are all gonna get wasted together. Forget about yourselves, enjoy one another because you enjoy me, I'm the spirit that is love and now courses through your veins for you all are my body, you're one body and my judgment is life. Eternal life. John chapter 12. You know in Genesis 6:13, God determines to make an end, not to some flesh, but all flesh and then he appears to botch the job because he lets Noah get away with a few other people on that boat, remember? The prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, over and over prophesied the destruction of not some flesh, but all flesh. In Romans 8, Paul writes that in Jesus, God condemns sin in the flesh. I, I think it, it, it at least means that an encounter with Jesus, a true encounter with Jesus, you'll know that you've had an encounter with Jesus because it will destroy your ego. In 2 Corinthians, he writes this, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. All have died. See, I think that means that rather than seeking the destruction of my flesh, which would be seeking a great thing, which is not a great thing, I can simply remember Jesus and thereby remember that all flesh has already been destroyed. I don't have to try to destroy it. I just have to see that it's already destroyed. It's an illusion, my ego. And then I can forget about myself and enjoy my friends at the party. One day, I'll actually be able to taste the pizza that Andrew Trawick eats, and neither of us will feel any pain, because pain is what members of a body feel when the body is torn apart. One has died for all, writes Paul in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, all have died. That's a crazy statement. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, seeking great things for themselves. Might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. All have died. All flesh suffers disaster. But that's not the end of the story. So to Baruch, God says, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord, but I will give, literally, the tense in Hebrew is a perfect, I have given, I will give, I have given you your life, nephesh. I have given you your nephesh as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. Now, one popular paraphrase puts it this way, as God's saying, things are gonna get worse before they get better, but don't worry, I'll keep you alive through the whole business. Never read a paraphrase before you read a more accurate, literal translation. 
so this is what the Lord actually says, or is, I think probably as close to an accurate translation as we get. That, that This is what he says, and it's better than what our flesh just immediately thinks, he says. He actually says this, I have given you your nephesh in all places, in every place to which you may go. That means that even as Baruch is experiencing disaster in his flesh, he'll be receiving his nephesh in every place he happens to go. Now this is astounding because it appears that it's like his nephesh already exists and God has already given this nephesh to Baruch, yet Baruch will be discovering this nephesh in every place that he happens to go. And what is a nephesh? Well, your nephesh is that thing that God creates on the sixth day of creation in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter two, verse seven. The Lord took some dust of the Adamah, the ground, and breathed the breath of Hayim, Hayim. I think Hayim is the pearl, Hay is this, I don't know, my Hebrew stinks, but he breathed the breath of Hayim, that's life. He breathed the life into the dust, and Adam became a living nephesh, a soul. It's usually translated soul. It's a word that doesn't have a great equivalent in English, so it's usually translated soul, but it's also translated life, and that's confusing because Jesus is the life, the one and only life. In scripture, that's the word zoe in Greek, or the word hayim in Hebrew. Jesus is the zoe, and that zoe, that life, is indestructible, according to the book of Hebrews, it's eternal. But Jesus also had a soul, a nephesh, or, or psyche in Greek, and, and he said you must lose your soul to find it. In fact, he poured out his soul, according to scripture, according to Isaiah, on, he poured it out on Mount Zion and he died. The, the nephesh died, not the indestructible Zoe. Actually, I think it formed a river. Well, a person's nephesh, or soul, is like a container or a vessel for the life. So what is the worth of every person? Well, every person contains the breath of God, right? The spirit of God. So uh, the worth of every person must be at least the worth of the breath, which is the life, which is in fact Jesus. You are literally, this is what you remember every week when you come here, you literally are worth Jesus. And yet like Andrew preached three weeks ago, every person has an individual value. Some sing well, some don't sing all that well. Some should teach, some should not teach. Some are tall, some are short, all are different. I loved Andrew's message and didn't get to discuss all these details with him afterward, but I think the worth of your life, your Zoe, is, is infinite and indestructible, for it's literally Christ in you, it's the life in you, and, and your unique value is kind of like the shape of his life in you. That is his blood in you which conforms to the shape of your earthen vessel. As Andrew preached three weeks ago, I kept thinking about one of these. We're like one of these. One piece of a, of a jigsaw puzzle. If you found one of these lying on the floor while you were vacuuming, what would you do with it? Well, that would entirely depend on what you thought it was, right? If you weren't aware that it was a piece to a puzzle or thought that there actually was no puzzle, well, you'd throw it away. <laughs> it's just worthless. However, if you knew it was part of a, of a puzzle, particularly one that you had been working on for a long, long time, well, you'd, you'd treat it like, like a treasure. So what is each and every piece of a jigsaw puzzle worth? Well, each piece is worth the exact same amount, and that's the entire puzzle. You didn't finish the puzzle if one piece is missing. It's worth the entire puzzle, and yet no two pieces are exactly alike. They each have an irreplaceable and individual value. Understand, I think this is what you are. 
already created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. John wrote, beloved, we are God's children now. You see, that means that we all have the same infinite worth. All four of my children, they're each worth the same amount, and that's everything to me. They have infinite worth to me. We are God's children now, and what we will be has yet to appear. Maybe that's a little like, like our unique or individual value that appears over the, uh, my journey through space and, space and time. Whatever the case, you cannot create your worth, and you cannot create your value which I think is like the shape of your worth. You can't create your value, but you can discover your value and become valuable to the people around you in very, very practical sorts of, of ways. But finding your value and making yourself valuable to others is a very counterintuitive process for the children of Adam. And why is that? That's because we've listened to a snake and we keep imagining great things for ourselves. Unaware that we are the great thing that God has already imagined. In other words, if this is you, and you are unaware that you are an indispensable part of a great thing that has already been imagined, and so you are unaware of your new, unique and individual uh, worth, that is, your individual value, you will seek great things for yourself. Hide your own value and render yourself worthless to your neighbors. How so? Well, if this is you, and a snake whispered to you, hey, you're not so great. You ought to seek some great things for yourself. Well, you might look at your neighbor, judge your neighbor and think, gosh, I have an empty space on top, and my neighbor has no empty space on top. I better fill in that empty space on top. And maybe, maybe your neighbor might look at you, judge himself, and say, gosh, I have a thing that sticks out on top, and my neighbor doesn't have a thing that sticks out on top. I better cut that thing off, and if you can't cut it off, well, then I at least better cover it up. In elementary school, Coleman won a national award in math, got this really cool plaque or kind of thing, and, and he covered it up. He hid it because he was seeking great things for himself. And none of his football buddies thought that a math trophy was a great thing. Well, anyway, if this is what you are, and a snake convinced you that there is no big picture that gives you value, so maybe you ought to make yourself valuable by seeking great things for yourself, over time, this is what I think you would become. One of these squares. This is what I think everyone would become, or maybe it is what we have become. So I think the puzzle piece is like your true self that God has created. It has infinite worth and unique value that cannot be destroyed. It cannot be destroyed, and yet it can be hidden in fig leaves or buried in a body of flesh or a vessel of clay in the depths of space and time. Your true self can be buried in your false self your ego, your flesh. So how do you find yourself? Well, you have to lose yourself. But how can I lose myself by trying, right? If losing myself is a great thing, if losing myself is a great thing, then seeking that great thing is not so great. How do I lose myself without getting stuck on myself? That's, that's, what, that's what I'm saying. This is the interior monologue of at least half of the parties that Peter Hyatt attends. Okay, Peter, stop thinking about yourself. 
you know the way you start a sentence and you don't really have the words to finish the sentence and then it just kind of dangles there in the air so then you don't start a sentence until too late because you've tried to think the sentence all the way through in your head then when you say the sentence it's no longer funny and what you just said wasn't funny at all in fact that was kind of creepy and oh crap she's been talking this whole time and you don't know what the hell she's saying you see in order to be myself I have to lose myself when I worry about myself I cannot be myself And in order to lose myself, I have to focus on something other than myself, maybe bigger than myself. If I'm a piece of a puzzle, maybe that would be the finished puzzle or perhaps the one that made the puzzle in the first place. He who saves his soul will lose it, says Jesus. But he who loses his soul for my sake and the gospel, see, maybe maybe that's the big picture. He who loses his soul for my sake and, and the gospel will find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. You see, saving your own soul is like taking a piece of a puzzle and wrapping it in bubble wrap and all the insulation that this world can provide and then putting it safely somewhere in a box. When I was little, my mom used to love to work on puzzles. We'd do it up on the mountains on vacation. And sometimes when I was little, she'd let me help. She'd hand me a piece and she'd say, okay, Peter, this is your piece. Now, you work on this piece of the puzzle. Imagine if I held on to that piece and thought, wow, Mom, maybe even said it. Wow, Mom, this is my piece. I'm going to wrap it in bubble wrap and keep it in a box. I'm not going to lose it. I'm not going to give it away. Thanks, Mom. She would have said to me, no, Peter. It's no fun unless you give it away. This is a puzzle, and when it's all together, it makes a beautiful picture. Your piece is worth the whole puzzle, but it's no fun until you discover how it fits and then give it away. You lose it and find it in the puzzle. Get the picture? Sometimes people say things like, well, if you're already great, why would you worry about doing great things? Why do great things if you aren't seeking great things for yourself? See, that's a little like asking, why would you tell stories at a party? Why would you sing or dance at a party? You know, dancing takes a whole lot of effort and it can be painful. Why would you tell stories, sing, dance, and laugh at jokes unless you were seeking great things for yourself? Well, if someone really asked you that question, wouldn't you look at them with a whole lot of compassion and say, oh, I'm so sorry, you you don't understand. A party's fun. You must have been practicing your dance steps in order to make yourself great, and so you never enjoyed dancing, and, and you always dance alone. Well, you were seeking the party for yourself, and so you never joined the party. It's fun to lose yourself in a song and find yourself dancing. It's fun to lose yourself in a story and find yourself laughing. It's fun to lose yourself in a party and discover that you're not alone. It's even fun to lose yourself in love and find yourself supporting a wife and four kids. Yeah, that's hard, and it can be painful. Scripture says that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. That's us. His kingdom, his body, his bride. Anyway, my mom would hand me a piece, and when I would get discouraged, she'd say, don't give up. It's got to fit somewhere, Peter. So try different things. Twist it this way, twist it that way, put it in different places, put it up against the other uh, pieces, and don't get discouraged. The harder it is to find the place that it fits, the funner it will be when that place is found. Sometimes she'd give me the last piece. Remember that when you were a kid? Your mom would give you the eschatos piece. And when I would give it away, I'd discover its meaning. It's a horse. 
I discover its meaning, and I discover the meaning of the entire puzzle. It's a picture of a farm. And I would love the picture. I would love the picture that we had constructed together so much more than the one that was printed on the box. I was blessed. And now that's just an analogy. You are not a piece of a jigsaw puzzle, but you are a living stone in an eternal city, somehow making a journey through this world of space and time. You are a member in the body of Christ, and in every moment of your space and time, God is giving you your soul, and nothing is wasted. Where you've missed your soul in your past, you can still find it with forgiveness. And where you've yet to see it, you anticipate it with hope, and right now you realize this blessing by faith. That's losing yourself for Jesus and finding yourself in Jesus moment by moment like, like Abraham um, or like Jim May. That's faith. One must completely abandon any attempt to make something of oneself, wrote Dietrich Bonhoeffer shortly before he was sent to the prison camp in Nazi Germany, <laughs> having failed at his plot to be a pacifist and his plot to assassinate history, um, Hitler and, and to be a great theologian. But we are reading him right now. One must completely abandon any attempt to make something of oneself, whether it be a saint or a converted sinner or a churchman, a righteous man or an unrighteous man, by living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes, failures, experiences, and perplexities. In so doing, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God, taking seriously not our own sufferings, but those of God in the world. That, I think, is faith. That is repentance. That is how one becomes a man and a Christian, and then he references Jeremiah 45. That's why I read it in the first place. So you can't obtain the blessing that is your own soul by seeking great things for yourself. You obtain the blessing by believing that you are the great thing that God has sought. And check this out, he has not only sought you, he has fought, he's fought for you. He suffered for you, and that's the greatest thing. And it will fill all things. It's the love of God, the life of Christ, the blood of the covenant, God's breath in every moment of your space and time. So he says, Baruch, I have given you your nefesh, your life, your soul, as a prize of war, a spoil, the booty of war, <laughs> the booty, the spoil of war. I have given you your soul as a prize of war in all places, every place that you may go. Do you know that God in Christ Jesus fought for you? He really fought for you, and you are his prize, the prize of that war against chaos and the void and the prince of darkness. He fought for you. He is the essence, he is the essence, the one who fought for you of all great things. And you see, each of us sought him for ourselves. And so we took his life on the tree in the garden. And even as we took his life on the tree in the garden, he gave his life on the tree in the garden. There he fought for you, and now he gives himself to you in all places that you may go. <laughs> wow. You see, when I see that, It destroys my flesh and gives birth to faith. The person I truly am, the person that you truly are, he literally, he literally creates you with his body broken and bloodshed. And he gives you yourself in every moment of your space and time, but not as you seek great things for yourself, but as yourself gives great things away. That's how you're born from above. You give yourself away and find that you're greater than you ever imagined. So of course Jesus says it's more blessed to give than receive. He thinks it's, he thinks it's great to give himself away. It's blessed. You know what Baruch means in Hebrew? 
this is kind of cool, it's the passive participle of Barak. It's actually the Hebrew word blessed. And Neriah means glistening light of Yahweh. So God literally, so this is literally what God says to Baruch, the stressed out, worried sermon writer. Baruch, son of Neriah, blessed son of the glittering light of God, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing evil on all flesh. That's the thing that covers up the light. I'm bringing evil on all flesh, declares the Lord, but I have given you your soul as a prize of war in all places which you may go. I think he's saying, blessed son of my glittering light, don't seek great things for yourself. You are the great thing that I have sought, I have sought, and that I am revealing in all moments of your space and time. I've given you your soul that you might lose it and find it in me, our soul, a communion of life, the last piece of the puzzle. Like St. Paul wrote, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, look now, all things have passed away and all things have become new. All things have passed away and all things have become new. And Monday morning, Jim May passed away. I'm really, really gonna miss him. Because he, he reminded me of my dad. I remember I used to think, oh, I'd love having lunch with Jim because it's like old times. It reminds me of my dad. Both of them were pastors that had achieved great things for themselves. And yet both of them went through some very painful times when they had to let go of all those great things. Let go. But they kept preaching. My dad at a nursing home, Jim here and wherever he could, they kept preaching, they kept singing, they kept singing stories and they laughing with everyone that they meet. In their 80s, they were so happy. Blessed Baruch. I think of Jim, or I think of my dad, and I think, God, that's Jesus. Neither of them were perfect, but in them I encountered Jesus. I think that's because they had stopped imagining great things for themselves, and so they could simply be the great things that God had imagined. And they could discover the great things that God had imagined all around them, like Moses, and Paul, and me, and you, and all of us, and you see, that's pretty great. That's heaven. And so, at a tree, in a, in a garden, on Mount Moriah, that was also Mount Calvary, and Mount Zion, at the edge of time and eternity, he fought for you. He took bread and he broke it. I think he broke it in a whole bunch of little pieces. He took bread and, and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. It was Jeremiah that prophesied it and Baruch that uh, wrote it down. Oh, I left it over here, but I wanted to read this to you. Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant that I will make with them, says the Lord. And he's talking about the house of Israel, but remember we're grafted into Israel. This is the covenant that I will make with them. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. At this table we confess the self that we have imagined and we receive the self that God has imagined. And do you know what things that God has imagined are called? Reality, 
and heaven. So I invite you to come to the table, take the cup and the bread back to your seat, and uh, imagine great things for everyone, and in particular, God. Amen. <laughs> yeah, amen. Did you, did you kind of, I don't know, feel that for a minute? Uh, you kind of felt blessed? Did you feel that? Like you were like Baruch? You were like blessed? Because you were thinking about the blessed one. You're thinking about Jesus. Sometimes that hard, that's hard for me after I preach a sermon because I've just been kind of exposed and I'm imagining great things for myself and thinking, oh gosh, I hope, I hope Andrew agreed with basically what I said and I loved his message and I, and I hope that I didn't offend Jim or Maureen and I hope that that kind of made sense and, and gosh, my butt kind of hurts. Um, I think about all those things and then I just have to stop and realize that's just my flesh. And then I put my, and then I have to work at putting my eyes back on the throne. And that's when I begin to feel blessed again. You see, maybe you feel blessed because for a moment you stop seeking great things for yourself. I'm just constantly seeking great things for myself. It's my flesh. People say, well, that's the way people are. Exactly. That's why he's going to destroy all flesh. I, I, I just naturally seek great things for myself, but for a moment, and you naturally seek, but maybe for a moment you were uh, just focused on the one who is great. And then he looks down and says, hey, look, that's my great thing. You know what that's called? Worship. It's supposed to be the motivation for everything that you do. Whether you're singing a song, writing a sermon, building a house, hanging on a cross, talking to your kids. Um, and so, kills the false self, liberates your new self, and you begin to enjoy who you truly are and who everyone else is. There's no way you could imagine a better you than the one that God has already imagined. So maybe you should have stopped imagining great things for yourself so you can be the great thing that God has imagined. That's, that's just what I'm saying. In other words, um, you're a masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. So in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, may you believe the gospel and so walk in the good works which God has prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. Amen.